0: The reading for today is going to be from 1 Kings 8, verses 1 through 6. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests have brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thank you, Caitlin. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. My name is Frank. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're in the midst of a uh, 22-week series called We Want a King, and uh, I'm going to get to that in a few minutes, but there's some other things that we need to do. First of all, uh, just uh, I want to express my lament because I know that Um, We're getting close to having those beautiful uh, election decorations on Camelback having to be torn down. And I'm going to be so disappointed about that. Um, That's called sarcasm, if you didn't know what that was. And that's one of my spiritual gifts. Um, So let me talk a little bit about Fallapalooza last night. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and and the, the main thing I wanted to mention is uh, I'm very grateful for all the volunteers and the staff who were there to make that happen. But I will tell you, if it weren't for Ellie, um, uh, Ellie's uh, leadership um, and, and her organization, e- Emmy, sorry, gosh. I, I knew I was saying her name wrong, and I just, like, it, I blanked. If it weren't for... Emmy's, Emmys, leadership and organization, it wouldn't have happened and uh, the thing just came off very smoothly. And believe it or not, um, with all of the preparation and all the stuff that was out there, we were out of here by 8.30 last night. So that was really good. So I appreciate Emmy doing all of that for us. So uh, thanks for that. Also, um, there was one other contest last night. Um, I decided there needed to be an enchilada contest as well. I didn't tell anybody. I was the only one who entered. I won. <laughs> so, um, a couple of other things. Uh, I know this is a lot, but a couple of other things. Uh, first of all, we're gonna have a couple of baptisms after this service, so we would encourage you all to stick around and celebrate that. Uh, uh, that's, that's an exciting time for us. Uh, be out on the patio, and the water is heated if you're worried about them. Um, also, um, I want to remind you to be here next Sunday morning. Really important family stuff going on next Sunday morning. Uh, we're going to have uh, Jack, our architect. We're going to have Luke Simmons from Redemption Central here. Uh, Tyler James and I uh, and I will also be on the platform. Uh, really, really big Sunday uh, morning. We we would appreciate you being here and praying for us about that. Last thing is um, I'll mention is. Uh, uh, w- the last three nights the last three Wednesday nights uh, in here we've had um, uh, we've had a membership class and that was great We had a wonderful turnout for that and uh, we're very thankful for that but now this coming Wednesday in a few days we're going back to uh, I'm just teaching now through second Corinthians and I'm going to Uh, do that every Wednesday night except for the week of Thanksgiving and the week of Christmas, but I'll be here every Wednesday night teaching through 2 Corinthians. Once we finish with that, though, uh, we've been talking as a pastoral staff and as a regular staff about the idea of doing some topic-related things, and one of the first things that we're going to do is we're going to do Six weeks on the spiritual gifts, we've had a number of people asking about that and wondering about that, and, and I think a deep dive into what scripture says about the spiritual gifts would be really uh, good, so we're going to do that sometime in probably starting around mid to late January uh, on Wednesday night, so hope, hopefully you can join us for that as well. So let's get into uh, the series. Uh, We've been doing this series called We Want a King. We've looked at Saul and David so far, and now we're hanging out with King Solomon. I guess you could say that those are the big three. Uh, So with Solomon, here's where we are. Uh, Solomon has been installed as the king, and he's asked for wisdom, and he's been established now because of this Uh, Passage in 1 Kings chapter 3, he's been established as the great wisdom purveyor. And he really is. If you know the Old Testament, you know that he wrote a lot of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Uh, Today, however, we look at Solomon building and furnishing and dedicating. The first temple in Jerusalem. If you remember, David had this idea of building it, but then recognized that it was going to be his son Solomon who built it. And so God uh, fulfills his promise in that regard. Solomon builds, furnishes, and dedicates the temple, as well as he also builds his own residence, which is kind of intermingled in these three chapters that we're going to look at uh, today. And then after next Sunday, we'll see that Solomon is going to turn from the Lord... And, and, and then we'll fixate on our need for the one true king. Uh, not some worldly, royal, political, or popular personality, but the Lord Jesus. That's, uh, in a sense, how we're going to be ending this, uh, this series before we move into Advent. And I'll give you a, a preview of what we're going to do today. We're going to do our best to walk through three chapters. Uh, there's chapter 6, which is... Uh, The temple is designed and it is built. And then chapter 7 is Solomon's palace is built. And then the rest of chapter 7 is actually the furnishing of the temple. So that's sort of Solomon's palace is sort of stuck in the middle of that. And then chapter 8 is Solomon dedicating uh, the temple and he prays a lot in chapter 8. So going back to 1 Kings chapter 6, I know Caitlin read out of chapter 8. Uh, Going back to 1 Kings chapter 6, I'll read the first six verses of chapter 6, and, and we'll go from there. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front uh, front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running uh, around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made the side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad, then the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. From around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. So if you're wondering what the month of Ziv is, it's like late April, early May. That's when Ziv occurs. And notice, I want you to notice right out of the gate, once again, this is important. We've talked about this throughout this series, uh, notice how time is measured from when the exodus from Egypt occurred. The, the, the author says, in the 480th year since the time that, they, that God led them out of Egypt. So again, this is just this constant reminder that we need to remember who God is what he has done for us and what he is doing for us now. And what he's doing for us now in this text is he's proving that he is not only a promise maker, but he's a promise fulfiller. He fulfills all of his promises. So that idea of measuring everything from the Exodus is very similar, if you want to look at it this way, it's very similar to us saying that this is the year of our Lord 2022 or 2022 AD. It's kind of similar to that. So one of the things I want to point out, these verses start to describe uh, the temple that Solomon built. Uh, One of the things I wanted to point out is you're actually sitting in a pretty good visual aid for this. The temple was about the size of Redemption Arcadia's sanctuary. The temple was actually about 50 square feet smaller than the Redemption Arcadia Sanctuary. So this will give you a feel for how big it was. The difference is that uh, the temple was much taller than our building. Uh, Apparently in Jerusalem, they didn't have these codes where you could only go up 30 feet, at least on our property. So it was taller, but this is about the footprint of the temple there. Um, the The new temple took seven years to build. Uh, The construction on our campus when we moved in here in 2015, the redesign of Biltmore Bible Church took nine months. So Porter construction, I would argue, is much faster and more efficient than the Israelites were 3,100 years ago. So there's been a lot of progress there. Also, there is a lot of detail. This is the thing that I really want to get at. There's a lot of detail about the temple in the rest of Chapter 6. Some of you are like, how? There's, that's a long chapter and there's a, there are a lot of verses dedicated to the detail of the temple. And then when you read chapter 7, after you get through the stuff about Solomon's palace, his house, there's a ton of detail about how the temple is going to be furnished, how it's going to be finished out, how it's going to be accessorized, lots of detail. So why is there so much detail and why are the furnishings and the temple so seemingly lavish? Well, here are three reasons why that is. Number one, God is a God of order. Read Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you will understand that God is a God of order because there was chaos. As the Spirit of God was hovering over the chaos, the Spirit of God then began to order all the chaos in those six days. He created these environments and then he filled these environments. They were perfectly ordered. There was no sin in Genesis 1 or 2. So everything was beautifully ordered. Uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has actually put that yearning for uh, this eternal order in our hearts, that we yearn for that. We yearn for order. We yearn for uh, this lack of sin, this lack of corruption. And God is a God of order. And so it's important to understand that. The problem with Genesis 3 is that sin entered the human condition. And not just the human condition, but sin entered the created order and disordered everything. So we live now, again, in chaos. Have you ever felt like it was a bit chaotic out there in the world? Certainly. So everything is disordered now because of sin. It's not just our relationship with God that's disordered. It's our relationship with each other. It's our relationship with God's good creation that's disordered. It's our relationship with ourselves that is disordered. It's just a mess. And so the construction and the instructions ordered in such detail and beauty is symbolic of how even though humans live in chaos and live in disorder, which is brought about by sin, God is still sovereign, and we can trust him for goodness, truth, wisdom, and this order that we all desire. If you were with us last week and for our conversation with David Massey, I think the most powerful thing that David talked about was how no matter how messed up everything is here, we recognize that Jesus is on the cross. That confirms his sovereignty, that he was on the cross and he was raised from the, uh, from the tomb. That confirms his sovereignty. So even though it's a mess down here, we can look to him for order and for goodness. We can trust him for his grace and his mercy and his love. And so we have a true north. We have, we have this anchor of truth and grace in our lives. That's really important. The temple symbolizes that order that we look for. Second of all, the temple is representative of the majesty and magnificence of God. Now, here's the thing. It's not that you and I are insignificant or unvalued. God loves us so much, number one, that He sent His only Son to be crucified as our Savior and Redeemer. That's how much He loves us. But also, go back again to Genesis chapter 1. He loves us so much that He created us in His image. We are all image bearers of God. That's a declaration not only of His love for us, but also of His desire to be in relationship with us. That He created us in His image and after our likeness. And that's every single one of us. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you are still an image bearer of God. He longs to be in relationship with you. He longs for you to look for his son to be your savior, to be your salvation. He wants that for you. And so we are loved. It's not that we're insignificant. We are loved. But the truth is, when we compare ourselves to God, there's quite a chasm there. And it takes humility which is one of the primary biblical virtues, it takes humility to submit ourselves to this reality. God is God, and we most certainly are not God. The temple's order and majesty is a reminder of God's magnificence and the grace that he bestows on us. And then third, the temple is symbolic of the power, strength, and presence of God with his people. The power, strength, and presence of God with his people. Especially the power that he had to create the universe in the first place and then the fact that he is present with us in it. The temple is very similar to many of the grand churches and cathedrals in Europe. Those are designed to inspire awe from the worshiper. And this is important, not awe of the building but awe of the the one creator who created this building. In a way, it's a terrible shame that on Sundays, the great cathedrals in Europe are mostly empty. I'm sure many of you know this. On Sundays, they're mostly empty, but during the rest of the week, they're filled with tourists looking at the building, and they're in awe of the cathedral. They're in awe of the building. You're missing the point when you do that. The building is designed to point you to the awesomeness and the magnificence of God. And this can be hard for some in the 21st century to see, but the temple is an example of sometimes we need to sacrifice practicality for a clear statement of God's reputation and character. Sometimes we will sacrifice practicality for a clear statement of God's reputation and character. Now, we don't do that very much today, but it's also, I will just say this about Redemption Arcadia. It's why we take worship and the liturgy in our services so important in Redemption Arcadia, because that's where we try to honor God's reputation and character, his majesty, his awesomeness, and his presence. And yet, even though we have all this information about the temple, the building and its furnishings, it can be somewhat challenging to modern readers like us to discern exactly what it might look like, It would be nice if the Bible had supplied us with all of the architectural renderings and the engineering schematics. Then we'd be able to know exactly what it looked like, so we just have to make do. If you ever go on Google, you can see all these different ideas of what it might look like. Here's one of the ideas of what it might look like. And that's sort of cut out so you can see on the inside. So again, that footprint would be about the size of of this building here. Uh, one of the things I want you to notice, so just one of the wonderful uh, progresses of technology, notice there's no HVAC equipment on the temple. <laughs> so, you know, it, uh, that must have been tough in Jerusalem during the summer when it was over 100 degrees on, you know, on Saturdays, people would be like, nah, let's just go to the lake. So um, it's gonna be really hot in there. Anyway, so that's the temple, the building of it. Now we're gonna take a look at Solomon's residence. Now, this text of Solomon's residence is between the building of the temple. There's the rest of chapter 6, which we didn't read, the building of the temple. And then after uh, we read about Solomon's residence, the rest of chapter 7 is going to be furnishing uh, the temple. So uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of uh, of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars, and it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows, and the window opposite uh, and, the, and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made a hall of pillars, its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front uh, with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was furnished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones, cut according to measurement, and cedar, The great court had three courses of of cut stone all around and a course of uh, cedar beams. So so had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the building. Notice all the cedar. (laughs) So uh, Lebanon at that time was famous for cedar, so they had to import all this cedar to be able to build with it. Cedar is considered the very best wood. And again... Uh, the cedar is, is, is considered strong and statuesque. It's the most important wood. It was it was the wood that would be the most awesome and the most impressive. Had to be imported and it had to be constructed only by cedar specialist carpenters. Apparently they had a union. You if you were if you were tra- you apprenticed in cedar and then you became anyway. So, and and then just you look at verse eight and this special section for Solomon's wife uh... the daughter of pharaoh and we mentioned that and read about that last week in first kings chapter three uh, i think we need to deal with that a little bit because it would be pretty common knowledge that this was maybe not solomon's only wife anybody want to take a guess how many wives Yeah, yeah seven hundred wives okay our founding pastor tom schrader used to say all the time that's the original seven hundred club people don't seem to know that um, and then of course he also had, what, 300 concubines? 1,000 women, okay? So, uh, so why the special mention of this wife of Pharaoh's daughter? Why the special mention of that? So there are actually two theories there. Uh, I'll give you the first theory, which I don't buy into. First there, the first theory is, well, this is Solomon's favorite wife of the 700, okay? Now, right out of the gate, that makes me wonder which algorithm they were using to determine what his favorite wife would be. And it's not my favorite theory, and here's why. Because Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon with and about his Shulamite wife, I'm pretty sure that if he had a favorite wife, it was probably his Shulamite wife who's been memorialized in uh, Scripture. And even if the Egyptian wife was his favorite, then the question becomes, what do you do with the other 699 wives who are feeling a little bit, Left out, maybe. And I know, I know, I get it. In their culture, 3,100 years ago, it would never allow for those other wives to be upset. they they just have to take it. But still, you have to understand, given human nature, it seems like that would still be asking for some trouble because feelings are feelings. So here's the second theory, and I think it's the right one. It's political. Solomon had married an Egyptian woman, the daughter of the Pharaoh, and this was a sort of political alliance, ironically with Egypt. Do you see the irony there at the beginning of chapter 6? It's been 480 years now since you were let out of slavery from Egypt and now Pharaoh has married the daughter, I'm sorry, uh, Solomon has married the daughter of Egypt's Pharaoh in order to form an alliance with Egypt. There's, There's all kinds of irony there and It's also strange that Solomon would do that because very specifically, God would say, don't make alliances with foreign nations because it demonstrates a lack of trust and faith in in me. But it is political. This idea that he was taking care of Pharaoh's daughter uh, makes considerably more sense. So there's really nothing romantic uh, or favoritism about it. I just think it's straight up politics and pragmatics in that case. Now, to me, it's very interesting and maybe you notice this too, Solomon's palace took 13 years to to build and was about twice the size of the temple. So it's twice the size of this building right here, Solomon's palace, and took twice as long uh, to build it. That just seems odd to me. Uh, Maybe it's room for the other 699 wives. I don't know. But anyway, I investigated all of this. And so there are three interesting things to know about that. Number one, the temple, this was the first temple that was built. It was magnificent, but if you remember that hundreds of years later, when Herod built the new temple, about about a thousand years later, it was massive in size, much bigger than the original temple, especially compared to Solomon's idea of a temple. And Herod's temple took 46 years to build. That's how big it was and how much work had to be done on it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is what we need to know is that Solomon's palace, Solomon's house was not just his residence, it was also a place where much of the government activity took place, so it housed more people than just Solomon. So while it's true that Solomon had an ego, he also had a practical need for this, quote, house to be very roomy because of all the administration that he would have to lead from there. And then number three, I like this uh, because it's rhetorical. Uh, uh, Some of the commentators submit that the reason the narrator of chapters 6 and 7 placed this story of Solomon's house, it's 12 verses, okay, right between the verses describing the building of the temple and the furnishing of the temple, each of those... 38 verses long. The building of the temple and the furnishing of the temple. 38 verses. It's a rhetorical way of dwarfing Solomon's house so that the reader understands exactly who God is. It's not Solomon. It's the Lord God. It's Yahweh. So it's a rhetorical device, once again, to point the reader to the magnificence of God. So now you get into the temple furnishings, verses 13 and 14 in chapter 7. And King Solomon went and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker of bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all of his work. So, uh, and, and this chapter then just goes on for 36 more uh, verses with lots of details about the furnishings, nice furnishings described with many specifics about the construction and how it was all put together. And it's again, it's very lavish, best quality. And it's helpful to understand that the specific furnishings that are emphasized and decorated the temple, these furnishings are actually, many of them, are a throwback or an allusion to or a shadow of the Garden of Eden before sin entered it. So again, there's, there's, there are all these rhetorical devices pointing to God as creator, God is sovereign, God is magnificent, God is the one true God, God is our true north, all of these things. The Garden of Eden in its ordered creation and existence before sin entered. And then finally, this guy Hiram. Quite a lot of biblical juice for this guy from Tyre. He's, he's in some other places as well. He was known as an expert in both bronze work and in cedar carpentry. So he did all of that work. And and so a lot of attention given to these furnishing details just as there is to the temple itself. So now chapter 8, the dedication ceremony of the temple. And and again, it's quite jazzy. We'll start with those first six verses that uh, Caitlin read for us. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel... ...before King Solomon in Jerusalem... ...to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord... ...out of the city of David, which is Zion... ...and all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon... ...at the feast in the month of uh, uh, thenim, Ethanim. ...sorry, I had trouble with that... ...which is the seventh month... ...so this is now in the fall... ...and all the elders of Israel came... ...and the priests took up the Ark... ...and they brought up the Ark of the Lord... ...the tent of meeting... ...and all of the holy vessels... That were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all of the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. So, right away, you see that there's an importance of the ark, the ark of the covenant. Uh, the Ark, the Holy Ark of God. And the Ark is placed in the center of the temple in the Holy of Holies. Now, we understand from uh, scripture and historical readings that only one Levite priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies only one day a year. That's it. And, and that's where the, the Ark was. And, and there's even stories of the fact that <clears throat> because the Holy of Holies was so special, um, uh, and, and nobody could actually enter the Holy of Holies except for this one priest. And it was, it was a blessing to, to get to go in there, to be selected to do that. Uh, but they would actually tie a rope around uh, one of the priest's ankles when he went in there in case for some reason he had a heart attack and he died while he was in there. Nobody else could go in there and drag him out. They would just drag him out by the rope. This is how sacred this place, uh, this place was. So the ark is understood as the very presence of God and his glory, and his glory. And it reminds the priests serving in the temple that the people attending, and the people attending the temple that God is the center of everything. So again, everything is just pointing to God. Now, on Tuesday mornings during scripture reading in, in here, we've been reading through the Torah. It's taking us a while to get through uh, the Torah. Uh, it's really fun, really interesting, and sometimes a bit repetitive. And if you think I have trouble with names, just come on. It's really hard. Okay. Um, But it's been great. But one of the things I've noticed, I'm beginning to, just reading through the Torah and then the history of Israel, you begin to bridge so many gaps and you begin to understand so many more things. So during this series, We Want a King, we keep reading about how every time God's people would get together for some sort of celebration, there had to be a feast. And, And there's this huge emphasis on feasts. And then you read in the Torah about how God said you must have a feast here, you must have a feast here, when you gather for this sacrifice, there needs to be a feast. When you sacrifice all of these oxen and sheep, they would be sacrificed and then they would be carved up in such a way some things would be uh, disposed of, but the other things would be given to the people to eat. That was the point, okay? And so there's this all this emphasis, feast, feast, feast. Fe- it's like they're Southern Baptists. A feast, feast, feast. I'm kidding. Okay, I, I can say that because I came out of the Southern Baptist tradition. So there's lots of feasts. So it got me thinking, why so many feasts? And so again, I look into that. Here you go. Do you ever stop to consider how difficult it was to get food back then? You ever think about that? We just take so many things for granted here. Do you think there was a grocery store at every major Jerusalem intersection back then? Do you think there was a convenience store on every block? You know, Circle K? Maybe a Circle J for Jerusalem? I don't know. you know. So, also, why do you think Jesus, in, in the Lord's Prayer, one of the first things he, he tells us, he instructs us to pray for our daily bread. For our daily bread. The reason is because that's how everybody lived back then. You never knew where your next meal was coming from, unless you were like a one percenter, sorry to use that language, but if you were a one percenter, maybe you did know where your next meal was coming. Most people didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 with bread? They're all sitting there going, I don't, I'm just going to hang out with him because now I can get a meal from him when I need a meal. That was important. You woke up every day thinking, I got to get some food, I got to get some bread, I've got to get a meal, Okay. Also, famines were regular occurrences back then. Like every other year, there was a famine. We have irrigation and other mitigating factors to help protect us from that today. But back then, if you had one bad crop, you could die. So think about uh, Joseph at the end of Genesis and the story of him uh, taking seven years and storing up all that grain for the seven years of famine that, that came. Why was that such a big deal? This is why. Okay, now, and I'm going to hit you with something here, just so you know, okay? Instead, for us today, dieting is a $60 billion a year business. And by the way, it has a 95% failure rate. See, we have the opposite problem. We have an abundance and I know, I know, you know, uh, supply chain and all that, we're worried, I, you know, I, I get it, I'm worried too. I've grown accustomed to having everything I want whenever I want it. I've grown accustomed to that. But it hasn't always been like, in fact, the history of us living in a, in a, in a context like that is really very short compared to the rest of history. You, you were concerned about where that next meal was coming from. So the feasts were set up to simultaneously show this is something that everyone needs and God is going to be the one that helps supply that for you. They needed these feasts. They wanted these feasts. And God was doing the providing for it. He was supplying for it. It's a way to acknowledge God is the great provider and the great protector by having these feasts. That's why they're so important. Verses 12 through 21 Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised. With his mouth to David, my father saying, since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, when it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise, ...that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father, and I sit on the throne of Israel as the, fa- as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. ...things there. Notice that they stood the whole time. You know, again... Three thousand years ago, twenty-five hundred years ago, two thousand years, years ago, you come to church, you come to worship. You never sat down; you stood. In fact, it was usually the teacher or the preacher who sat down while everybody else stood. So let's just practice that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But isn't that interesting? How things just sort of change. I'm. I, I'm really. I'm fine with it. Okay. But it is interesting how. How things change. Here's the second thing. What does it mean that God would dwell in thick darkness? Why did Solomon say that? That God would dwell in thick darkness? Well, this is a reference to and a reminder of God leading his people in the wilderness after the miracle of the exodus. God dwelled with his people and led them by day in a dark, thick cloud. It's a reminder of God's constant presence with us. God is constantly trying to remind his people, you and me, of his presence, his provision, and his protection. And our response should be joy and gratitude. So in total, what these verses do for us and for the readers then, they remind us that God fulfills his promises. Not only is he a promise maker, but he is a promise fulfiller. And the promise that we have in Christ's finished work is sealed for eternity. That's the good news for us today. Last few verses, twenty-two through twenty-six. This is the beginning of Solomon's prayer. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, "O Lord God of Israel, there is no god like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants." Who walk before you with all of their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as, I have walked before, as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. So this prayer, and, and it's a great prayer, and this is just the beginning of the prayer. It goes on for another 27 verses before Solomon gets to his benediction. And I, and I know it's interesting. Everybody thinks of David as the great prayer, and he was. He wrote probably half of the psalms in, in the Old Testament, which are, which are prayers. Solomon was actually known for proverbs and, and wisdom. So uh, there are three books in the Old Testament that are attributed to Solomon. Uh, David, David actually wrote more in the, in the Old Testament, but there are three books attributed to Solomon. Uh, Song of Solomon, which he wrote early in his adult life, Uh, most of the Proverbs, probably 90% of the book of Proverbs were Proverbs that were written by Solomon, those were written throughout his life, and then the book of Ecclesiastes, kind of the ultimate book in in wisdom uh, in many ways, was written uh, toward the end of Solomon's life, those three books, but even though he was known as the purveyor of wisdom, this prayer is magnificent. And again, you you look at this prayer and you realize, here's what Solomon is, is doing. He's saying, you're God, look at what you did, and look at what you're doing. You are a promise fulfiller. So what we looked at today, the temple gets built, Solomon's home is built, the temple is furnished, and Solomon dedicates the temple and he prays. And critical to our understanding of these three chapters is that God is big, God is ordered, God is majestic, God is sovereign, God is powerful, God is provider, God is protector, God's presence is with us, and God deserves his exaltation. And again, I I cannot read about the exaltation of God in chapter 8 by Solomon and not Go to what I think is a kind of a corresponding passage in the New Testament, and that's what I'll end with. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. So Paul writes to the church at Philippi do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Paul gives us a principle that we need to have humility in, in our relationships with others, submitting to one another, thinking about the other. It's not that we don't get to think about ourselves. Paul specifically says we can think about ourselves, but we also have to think about ourselves in relationship to others and think about other people's interests and submit ourselves to that. And then what he does is he gives us his sermon illustration. He gives the example. He says, what you need to do is have the same mind in you that Jesus Christ had it. And then he describes that mind who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to cling to. But rather, Jesus emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, and he was born in the likeness of men, in the likeness of humans, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Most scholars think this is actually a song, a psalm, and a prayer that Paul is singing to God and leading the Philippian church in singing to God and exalting God. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, prayer, It's a beautiful song. And he says, here's what Jesus did. He became obedient to his mission, even to the point of going to a cross, the the most brutal form of execution ever devised, and dying for us. In Ephesians, Paul says, out of reverence for Christ, you and I are to submit to one another. Out of reverence for what Christ has done, out of reverence for what he submitted to on our behalf, we are to submit to one another. Because then here's, here's the pattern that happens. Therefore, because Jesus did this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, uh, there's an author who wrote many, many books, Christian author, and and the book that he wrote that sold the, he had many bestsellers, the book that he wrote that had, that had the worst sales uh, uh, by far of the 20 books that he wrote was a book titled Descending into Greatness. How many of you would like to descend into greatness? I think the title doomed that book to no sales. But the book is actually an explication of this passage, this Philippians passage. That the pattern that we must follow, Paul Miller, another author, calls it the J-curve. Descending into greatness. Understanding that exaltation isn't up to us. Our job isn't to exalt ourselves, but our job is to submit ourselves to God and to others. And then God, in his right timing, will then exalt us. And maybe it's going to be at the end of our lives. Maybe it's going to be during our lives. We don't know. But the idea is to have the faith to be able to trust God for his exaltation, because he's God and we're not. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for just this tremendous example in scripture of who you are, of your magnificence, of your provision, of your protection, of your promise-keeping, and and just your wisdom. God, I pray that we would all have a, a heart that just wants to submit our hearts to your hearts submit our wills to your will. Like Jesus submitting himself to the cross, we should submit ourselves to you. Give us the courage to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to proceed with our time of reflection and response. going to sing two more songs together, uh, led by our, our team up here. We're also going to take communion together if our communion servers would come forward, please. And I just, again, as a reminder, and maybe you've never even heard these words before, but they're wonderful words. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, the last night of his life, he knew what was coming. He knew the cross was coming for him. He's with his disciples, and he picks up the bread, and after giving thanks, he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body, and it's been given for you, looking forward to the cross. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they had supped on the bread, he picked up the cup of wine and he said, after giving thanks, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He's he's calling people who have given their lives to Jesus. As we're going to witness today in baptism in just a few minutes, he's called people who have given their lives to Jesus to partake of this sacrament, this, this meal. The bread and the cup. And so as we come, we come confessing that we need Jesus, but we also come celebrating that we have Jesus. So let's do that right now.
2: in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking I trust you I don't need to understand so make me your vessel make crushing in the pressing you are making new wine in the soil
3: benediction from hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25 therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of jesus by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of god let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Amen. Please join us for the baptisms on the patio. Thank you for being with us tonight. Today, go and live all of life, all for Jesus.